This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, well, we may have some stragglers from the lunch crowd, but we're going to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> it is 2.47, no, 3, no, 2, right? 2.47, it looks like, from my watch. Our topic this afternoon <clears throat> is which study should I use? I'll talk more about that as we get started after prayer. So I'm going to ask if you bow your heads with me, and I want to kneel and ask God to bless our time together. Father in heaven, I just pray at this time uh, after lunch, uh, as we've been fed physically, Lord, may our minds now be moved and stirred by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to be more than just hearers of the word, but we really want to be active disciples of Christ. And Father, we need your strength and your power and your guidance to do so. I pray that you'd be present with us here in this seminar this afternoon. And Father, we pray that you would give us... Uh, the ability and, and, and the motivation to share Christ with those around us and lead souls into the truth, for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, perhaps some of you are just joining us, and in the prayer I referred to, a statement I read in the last session from the book Christian Service, it's page 69, and the statement says this, it says, let ministers teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, they must carry the burden that the Lord has laid upon them, the burden of leading souls into the truth. And we unpack that a little bit, and I want to just do that by way of review briefly. <clears throat> the statement's an interesting one because it, first of all, identifies a burden that the Lord has laid on us, not that the ministers or the church or the conference or anybody else has laid on us. And the word burden, I mean, we don't... <clears throat> necessarily like to go with the word burden so much today. I don't know if the companion word is going to be as desirable, but if we were to say something other than burden, the burden the Lord has laid upon us, what other word might we use? The responsibility the Lord has laid upon us, which I said isn't that much more pleasing necessarily. But I think it's important for us to know from the pen of inspiration that God has laid a responsibility on us. And that responsibility is, in the words of Ellen White, leading souls into the truth. And I shared in the last session that that's not just giving a glow track. That's not just saying God loves you. And those things are fine. But you need to do more than that to lead somebody into the truth. The implication is that you're going to work with somebody and labor with somebody and walk them into understanding and practicing the truth that we believe is Seventh-day Adventist. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in our next session, uh, which is how to give a really good Bible study and a really good Bible study is one where people make decisions. That's our next session. Um, <clears throat> I was talking with my friend Cameron DeVazier. He's, he's what I'm doing on a maybe a personal level from the standpoint of sharing your faith. He's doing on a more corporate level from what it looks like in the church to have total member involvement. And he and I have done a lot of seminars in different places. So we were just talking about, and we've spoken on a lot of different topics and it's unfortunate, but a reality that we both shared, that when you talk on evangelism, everybody wants to go hear media. Everybody wants to go hear relationships. Everybody wants to hear everything else. And I talked in the last session we had, and I'm not down on any of that, but I'm going to tell you this. A lot of times we feed ourselves, feed ourselves, feed ourselves, and get spiritually fat and never have a way of sharing. And we give all these excuses. I don't know enough. And we come to seminar after seminar and GYC and ASI and everything else, and we keep feeding ourselves, and yet we don't know enough, we don't know enough, we don't know enough. When are we going to know enough? I'm going to tell you the best way to know enough is to put into practice that which you've learned. And the best way to do that is share it with those who don't know. And this is a burden that the Lord has laid upon us. And again, in that statement, uh, the burden the Lord has laid upon us uh, is that burden which, and it says the ministers are to teach the members this, that that's what makes us grow in spirituality. I had somebody ask me afterwards. In fact, I'll comment on that in a minute. The notes I'm using can be found at this link. If you have a device on you and you want to type that in, you can get the notes. I had hoped to have slides, but that's one of the disadvantages sometimes of being in full-time pastoral ministry and also extracurricular ministries is you don't always get everything done you wanted to. 
So I have the handout you can look along in. But when I'm ta- this afternoon, especially on a topic like this, when you come to, I know how it is at GYC, people come up and like, which, which one should I go to? This is probably a title that most people are not going to choose unless you're very deliberate about giving a Bible study. And I may have even titled it better from this standpoint. I'm going to talk about some lessons this afternoon, but what I'm going to address in this session is much more a prevalent, I don't want to say a philosophy, but, but, a, but a, uh, a, a, there's been a discussion recently about getting away from the old doctrinal Bible studies that we've done for years and years in the past and getting into something more fresh and more Christ-centered and more relational. And I have people as a... I didn't introduce myself for this session, but in addition to being a pastor in the Michigan Conference, I also am the director of their evangelism training school. In addition to being the director of our evangelism training school in Michigan, I've worked with uh, and taught at AFCO and I've taught at... At, at Life, and I've taught at Arise, and I've taught it. So I have a lot of ex- Mission College of Evangelism. So I have a lot of experience with uh, evangelism and giving Bible studies and soul winning. And so people ask me a lot, well, you know, what study should I use? Because I'm, I'm wanting to give a Bible study to somebody, and, and I'm hearing that, you know, this, this, this study here is too doctrinal, it's all facts and figures, and it doesn't help people to build a relationship with Jesus. So that is going to be the subject matter for what we're talking about in this session. I'm going to talk about some studies to recommend. But if you have even looked into giving Bible studies with a pre-printed lesson set, I can't count the number of lesson sets available to you. You go to the Adventist Book Center and you're going to find innumerable lessons uh, that are all very good. So which study should you use? I want to make a point here in the beginning of this uh, session that you need to understand when it comes to sharing your faith with others. And I I kind of closed on this in our last session. The Seventh-day Adventist message is unique. Our message is a prophetic message. It's a message that nobody else gives. There is not another message like it. Let me interject this as well. I fear... Let me put it this way. There's been an agitation in recent years. Now, in pastoral ministry, and I'm an ordained minister of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In very recent years, there's been a strong push towards requiring anybody who's going to be ordained to have a master's degree. Now, I'm all for education. But I've said this before to people. I'm always hesitant to make a stipulation that would forbid Jesus or John the Baptist from being my pastor. Hear what I'm saying? There's been a push towards the master's degree, and what I fear, it's not just in the realm of ministry, but there's a lot of things that we do sometimes. Our churches are also becoming much more entertainment-centered. Okay? What I mean by that is... People come into church, it's always, what do I get out of it? People are looking at their watch all the time. Now, I preach like I preach at GYC. And it's funny, I've had church members, they're like, Pastor, half hour, 25 minutes. I'm like, look, I preach all over the place, and I put on audio verse, and I'm not the longest preacher, by the way. If you've you've, uh, ever listened to Dwayne Lemon, you just park yourself in for two hours. You're going for a ride. You've got a long sermon. But the point is this. I've had repeated discussions with church leaders in different places about sermon length. Something's wrong when all we can think about is our watch on the one day of the week when we come before the Lord in His house. Okay, It's telling of a kind of a mindset that is creeping in. Now, thank you very much. What I'm getting at is, uh, with that entertainment mindset, it's come to a point that we don't And I mean, it impacts us here in a major way at a GYC, at an ASI or whatever. We'll listen to Doug Batchelor's and Mark Finley's. We'll crowd out the room to hear the notable speakers forgetting that God puts his spirit upon people 
and gives them a message, and it doesn't matter if we've ever heard of them in our life. If that's where we are and that message is being presented, that's the message of God to me. But in the entertainment mindset, we're very critical of everything, and we, well, you know, I don't think that was a great sermon, or I don't think this is... And you know what's happening all the while is, while, and, and I'm speaking now as an adult, and those of us who are a little bit older, as, as my generation has done that, the younger generation says, God forbid I ever even try to witness or preach or anything because I'm going to be subject to that same type of criticism. That same type of critiquing. How good was it? Oh, I'll give him a 5 out of 10. And that same thing creeps into giving Bible studies. And what's happening in, in all of it, the point I'm making is this. We are putting far, much, far too much emphasis on the human instrument instead of the Lord. And so we say, throw our hands up and say, I can't give a Bible study, I can't do this, and I can't do that. Why? Because we're thinking about who? Ourselves. We're thinking about our weaknesses, our inadequacies. Instead of thinking that if the Lord called me to go there for, then the Lord must be willing to equip me to do what he's called me to do. And I want you to keep that in mind. When we're talking about the studies we should use, we're talking about framing it, putting in the right emphasis and everything else, there's a lot of manipulation that can go on on our part, trying to make it just so Christ-centered and balanced and this, that, and the other, that we can get to a point that we are doing more manipulating than letting the Bible do its work. If you're preaching the Bible or sharing the Bible, I'm going to tell you something that's going to happen. The Spirit of God is going to ride those words right into that person's heart and mind and reveal things to them that you could never reveal. Uh, Case in point, something that comes to my mind is, is if you've ever read about, I don't know if you've heard of E.J. Wagner, one of our church's pioneers. And E.J. Wagner, in sharing his conversion experience, said he was in a big tent. And he said he, was, he, he, he doesn't even remember who was speaking. He became lost to his surroundings and suddenly he saw Christ uplifted on the cross, dying for his sins as his Savior. Now how did that, it wasn't in the words of the preacher, he didn't even remember the preacher. It wasn't the eloquence of the preacher. It was the Spirit of God. And I'm going to tell you, the Spirit of God will do the same thing when you're sitting and giving a study and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not very good at this and everything else. The Spirit of God is going to open the understanding of that person you're studying with and illuminate their mind and they're going to say, that was the most powerful thing I've ever heard. Amen. Yes, sir. Yes. Well, so the question you're asking is, you know, a lot of times we get that today from people. Now, I don't know, I'm getting, you're talking about in the church, even when you try to do something as a lay person or... Oh, okay, from the standpoint of the person you're studying with, asking and wondering what your credentials are. I don't know if you're familiar with a statement in the book uh, Evangelism, where Ellen White says that oftentimes... The wealthy and the educated are refreshed by the simple words that a person who speaks them, uh, can speak them in faith, talking about Jesus as, and I'm paraphrasing this, as he's their friend. Okay? In other words, I got on this earlier, and we're, I, I haven't expounded on this yet. I will before the week is out. But I talked about the importance of knowing spiritual interest in people and discerning spiritual interest. A lot of times we spend our too much time banging our heads against the wall trying to reach somebody who has no interest. Let me tell you something about atheists. Most atheists like to argue, and that's about it. And you can argue till the cows come home. The Bible says, in fact, uh, the Bible says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness in Romans chapter 1. It says the things of God are known by them, but they don't want to know. They suppress the truth. Ellen White says the real reason for atheism, you can read it in the book Steps to Christ, the chapter, What to Do with Doubt, is a love for sin. And in fact, I, I just saw this video online. You can look it up, watch it for free by Ray Comfort called The Atheist Delusion. And he goes around and asks all these people, young and old, about their, you know, who are atheists. You're atheist? Tell me why. Give me the reasons. And, and ask some questions about science and whatever. And when it comes down to it, at the end of it, he says, you know, a lot of people um, are afraid 
to admit the existence of God because they're afraid if they do, they're going to have to give up their sin. And it's interesting, uh, he has a handful of people in, the, in his interview, and he asks them, and they say, you know, that's right. There are things, yeah, I, that's part of it. I don't want to give up. And he says, look, I've shown you all these things. Now, are you still going to be an atheist? Yes. I mean, the fact of the matter is, I'm not saying, don't try to reach the atheists. I'm saying, if you are going way out of your way and people aren't being convinced and they're asking credentials and all, and this, all this and that, the likelihood is there's no spiritual awakening there. And the Lord has a way of waking people up, but while you're spending your time there, there's somebody who is longing for spiritual light right next door, probably. Hey, Pastor Daniel. Okay, so let me move forward in this. Our message is a prophetic message. The study and the fulfillment of the prophecies is what brought us into existence. It gave birth to the Adventist church. We are built on the messages of Daniel and Revelation. The message provided us with our mission and our message, and it ultimately guarantees the fulfillment of that message of, of our hope as Seventh-day Adventists. Still, there are Adventists who have grown weary of the prophecies. That's reality. Oh, we've heard this before, and yeah, we're going to give people the same. You know, a lot of times we talk about not wanting to give people these studies, the same old thing and the prophecies. And they, what we oftentimes are talking about is ourselves. I say that because I study the prophecies with people all the time. You ought to see what happens when a person studies the prophecies. I'm going to get into that in just a little bit. But some Adventists have grown weary of the prophecies. Typical Bible study series is often viewed as being too complex and non-relational. Right? Or simply irrelevant and unappealing. The theory is that when Bible studies have a lot to say about prophecy and doctrine, the theory is that they leave the heart untouched. Right? You're talking about prophecy and doctrine, but it doesn't do anything in the heart. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you that that is not reality. I'm not saying it can't be the reality. It's a possibility that somebody can just share things in a very factual way, but it's not because it's doctrine that's being shared. It's more the way that it's being shared, as we're going to continue with. I'm going to talk about Christ the center. You've ever heard about making Christ the center of the studies? And this is something we have counsel on. In fact, uh, you know, Jesus had this issue come up in his day. Go to John 5 with me. And look at what he told his religious leaders. And this is something that we see throughout the, the ages. But I want to go back and, and look at it in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 38. Uh, verse 39, rather. John 5, 39 says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have what? eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, is it possible to study the Bible and yet not study Christ? Is it possible to study the Bible without any interest in knowing Christ? Yes, it is. But that's not the Bible's fault. However, we've had an experience in our own church of people who gave Bible truth in very factual terms but not in very Christ-centered terms. So Ellen White counseled, and I'm reading from the book Faith and Works, page 18. Ellen White counseled this. In fact, she commented in the, to the, of the church in her day, and she wrote, The law of God has been largely dwelt upon and has been presented to congregations almost as destitute of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his relation to the law as was the offering of Cain. <laughs> That's pretty bad, isn't it? She said that of our ministers. They've been dwelling upon the subjects in a Christless way. And so she counseled. Now listen to her counsel. Uh, I'm sorry, this isn't her counsel yet. She said in another place, no, no, this is the counsel, it's both. She says in um, Review and Herald of March 11, 1890, as a people, we have preached the law until we are as dry as the hills of Gilboa that had neither dew nor rain. That's pretty dry. We must, now notice what she says, we must, must preach Christ in the law, and there will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as food to the famishing flock of God. Now that counsel, written back at the turn of the last century, has led some to conclude that our Bible studies are too doctrinal. 
and they need to be more Christ-centered. However, this creates a false dichotomy. And what I mean by that is, doctrine is a word that means teaching. The doctrines we hold as Seventh-day Adventists are the teachings of Christ. Being the teachings of Christ, it's impossible that they would, be, they would not be Christ-centered. Now, you can present them in a non-Christ-centered way. But notice Ellen White's proposed solution was not to preach Christ instead of the law. What was it? When we just read it, did you pick that up? I wish I had it on the screen and you could look at it again. She didn't say to preach Christ instead of the law. She said we were preaching the law, the law, the law. We need to be preaching Christ in the law. There's a big difference. There's a big difference. Our doctrines must be taught with Christ at the center. And this is from the book Selected Messages, volume 2, page 87. Ellen White wrote this, The truth for this time is broad in its outlines, far-reaching, embracing many doctrines. Okay, the truth for this time embraces many doctrines. But these doctrines are not detached items which mean little. They are united by golden threads forming a complete whole with Christ as the living center. Now that's an important statement. What she's telling us is our doctrines point to Christ. And I want to say even in cases, not every case, and that's why she was counseling, but even in cases where people have presented them in a wrong way, the Spirit of God represents them in a right way. The truth is living and powerful. Now, sometimes what we do is we say things like, and I've had people tell me this. Folks, I've been in evangelism for a long time. I've heard it all. And, and a lot of people, I told you, a lot of people have a lot to say about evangelism who don't do much, or they have a lot to say about winning souls and they don't win souls. And they tell me what works. I've had people say, well, this works and this works. Well, how many souls have you won? Well, I really don't. I, I influenced a lot of people. Now, you'll never hear a fisherman. Hey, how many fish did you catch? Well, I didn't catch a any fish today, but I influenced a lot of them, okay? And I'm not trying to belittle things, I'm just trying to say, listen, a lot of times our thinking is more prideful and humanistic, again, forgetting that the power in our witness is not our method and me uh, our methodology, is in God, in his power to work. So, for example, I've known people who were gripped when they learned that when you die, you rest in the grave. Now, you may think, you're kidding me, right? Like Just the state of the dead? There are things that we know that we take for granted. I've had people come and they say, hey, we need to preach more about the cross. I tell you, people who have heard over and over about the cross, but it was when they heard that when you die, you rest in the grave, that changed their life. I can't explain it. It's the truth of God. And the truth of God hits everyone where they're living. And so one doctrine hits one person one way and one hits another way, uh, person another way. I'm not going to prescribe to God what he needs to teach to people. Ellen White went to speak in Europe. There was a brother, Madison, M-A-T-T-E-S-O-N. You can look this up. She went to speak in Europe and he counseled her. Counsels the prophet of God. Says, hey, when you come over here, you might, I'm going to give you a little bit of advice. You would do much better to speak more about the love of God and less about duty. The people over here aren't going to respond to talking about Christian duty. Ellen White said, I answer that man, if that's the burden that God gave you, then you preach it. But I'm going to preach what the Lord gave me to preach to these people. God knows what this people needs. And then she says, I spoke on Isaiah 58 and I did not round the corners at all. Her point was, that, you know, the, one of the frustrations I have today is, God uses different people in ministry different ways. And this seems to be lost on our generation. When, when God united, and you may have read this in Ellen White's writings, God united Peter and John. And I don't know if you've ever read what Ellen White says about that, but she says Peter was, he was real forward. He was outspoken. She said if the gospel would have been left to Peter, and I'm paraphrasing, he would have offended everybody right out of the church. John she said, was very meek and mild and retiring. She said, the gospel message had been left to John and never would have gotten anywhere. So God pairs Peter and John together 
and now they balance each other out and do a more perfect work. Now what's interesting is Ellen White says the same thing about Luther and Melanchthon. She says the same thing about Huss and Jerome. Even Jesus himself, when he talks about his ministry and contrasts it with John the Baptist, he says, John comes to you, neither eating or drinking, you say he has a demon. The son of man comes both eating and drinking, you call him a wine-bibber and a glutton. So even Jesus and John varied their, their approaches to ministry. The concern I have today, and I could say more on this, I won't, but the concern I have today is that we're so worried about offending people, we think everybody should be a John or a Melanchthon or a Jerome. We're not ready for the Husses and the Luthers. Ellen White talks about Luther and says there are times he went in to speak and he was very careful, didn't want to offend anybody. And she says the Spirit of God came upon him and he spoke words he, never, he would have been afraid to speak before those councils. I'm going to tell you today, God needs both Husses and Jeromes, both Luthers and Melanchthons, both Peters and Johns. And don't, because you're not a Peter or you're not a John, don't think everybody has to be just like you. God has given a message, and as we give the message He has entrusted to us, His Spirit will do the work on hearts. So we don't need to make Christ the center of our doctrines. He's already the center, according to inspiration. What we do want to do is present them in a Christ-centered way. Now, one other thing I want to share here is something I read recently in the book Desire of Ages about the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Now, you've read this, right? In the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I'm going to send you another, some translations say, helper. And some translations say comforter. The word in the Greek is parakletos. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. He also calls him the spirit of truth who leads into truth. I must have read this before and just read right past it. And this gripped me recently in Desire of Ages. Listen to what it says here. The comforter is called the spirit of truth. It's page 671 in Desire of Ages. The comforter is called the spirit of truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth, and thus, that is, in this way, he becomes the comforter. Now, don't miss that. She's gonna, he dwells in the heart first as the spirit of truth, and in this way becomes the comforter. There is comfort and peace in the truth. But no real comfort or peace can be found in falsehood. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody in this church, even leadership in this church, say, oh, people today aren't interested in truth. Are you kidding me? Spirit of truth is out of a job then. Listen, the spirit of truth, the reason that we say today's generation isn't interested in truth is because nobody claims that it, you can know truth. You share with somebody who has questions that there is something you can know for sure. It's sure, it's absolute. And you know what? There's comfort in it. So we're told here, there's comfort and peace in the truth. There is no peace in error. Our message is a message that says there's a God and he can be known. There's a plan of salvation and you can know it and receive it. There are truths about our being and our existence and, and our, 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 how, what we're made up of that are all tangible. And there's comfort in knowing the truth. Our message speaks very clearly and comfortably in that sense to this generation. I want to talk about Christ as, I read that statement that talked about Christ being the center. In another place, Elmite talks about Christ being the foundation, and I want to read that to you from the book Evangelism, page 190. It says, The sacrifice of Christ as an atonement for sin is the great truth around which all other truths cluster. In order to be rightly understood and appreciated, every truth in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, must be studied in the light that streams from the cross of Calvary. I present before you the great, grand monument of mercy and regeneration, salvation and redemption, the Son of God uplifted on the cross. 
This is to be the foundation of every discourse given by our ministers. Have you heard that before? Have you ever heard that? Some of you have, some of you haven't. I'm going to tell you how some people read this. This is to be the last sentence. This is to be the foundation of every discourse given by our ministers. This is how some people read that. This is to be the subject of every discourse given by our ministers. I went to an evangelistic series. It was put together. All the presentations were put together. I was told to be Christ-centered. What it was, was every topic pretty much ended up being Jesus came to save us from our sins, he died on the cross, and the actual doctrine itself became kind of sketchy and blurry. How do I know that? Because as I work with the people going to, and at the particular time I was working with a lot of Bible workers who were also working with interest, and the people were not getting it. And when you talk to them, they're like, yeah, I've heard about Jesus, but a lot of them were Christians. I've heard about Jesus being the other thing. You know, you're talking to somebody who's always learned that when you die, you go straight to heaven and straight to hell. And when the topic that's presented is not clear, as far as that aspect goes, and they just get a little thumbnail sketch of it, they're like, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm going back to what I know. Christ is to be the foundation of every discourse. The cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ is to be the foundation of every discourse, but not the topic of every discourse. One thing that's interesting is people will read, I've had people quote this from Ellen White, go back and read Ellen White's sermons. She herself says, this is what I do when I preach. Go read her sermon. They're not all on the subject of the cross, but they're all founded on the cross. I've had people say, I've gone to evangelistic series, I hear Mark Finley, but he, you know, he, teach, he preaches this, that, and the other. I don't know what they're thinking it needs to be. They find fault because it's not, the subject of every message isn't the cross. The foundation is the cross. That's the counsel that is given. And when that's not followed, what happens is people are not clear on the truth for this time. The truth for this time is not nebulous. It is a very specific um, message. Sharing a Christ-centered Bible study doesn't require that we turn every topic into a study on the death and resurrection of Christ. What it does mean is that every Bible truth, doctrinal, practical, prophetic, or otherwise, from Genesis to Revelation, in the words of Ellen White in that statement, must be shared in the light of its relation to Christ and the plan of salvation. Christ must be in the subject. For example, and when I preach the, the subject of the, the, the state of man in death, talk about death and immortality, one of the most powerful passages to me, there are two that I like to go to. One is where the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that God alone has immortality. That immortality is an attribute of God. It's not an attribute of any created being. You know, if everybody got that down in their head, all these false religions would fade away. People go to Buddhism and Taoism, whatever, because they think they're going to have an afterlife. Guess what? There is no afterlife. There is no immortality outside of God, the God of heaven, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So that's a powerful passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's why the Bible says in 1 John, and I always enter my, end my presentation with 1 John 1 and the appeal there. The Bible says, uh, uh, the Son of God has come that we might have life. And it says, he who has the Son has life. He who has, does not have the Son of God does not have life. So you're preaching, and I'm not going through obviously the whole study or the whole sermon, but you're making the message of the Bible plain regarding what happens, the nature of man, immortal or mortal or immortal, what happens when you die, etc. But you make Christ the foundation. You make it clear that in the context of that study what the relation is to Jesus Christ. But sometimes that, that in the attempt to make things Christ-centered, I've heard people, people make things very blurry. So when on the other side of it, you simply ask the person who went through the study and they don't know what was said. That's not your goal in giving a study. The person has to be clear on the message. Christ is the foundation and should be of every message. Now let's talk about prophecy for a minute. Did you know Christ, his own message was a prophetic message? We talk about our message of Seventh-day Adventist being a prophetic message. Go to Mark chapter 1. Right when Jesus began to preach, Mark chapter 1. 
Matthew, Mark, chapter 1, verse 15. The message of Christ was a prophetic message. We'll start in verse 14. The Bible says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, what? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now that's an odd way to start your preaching ministry. The time is fulfilled. What time? Now I suppose somebody who didn't know any better could say, I guess the time he decided to start preaching. But the people he was preaching to understood the times. And they understood in the book of Daniel that the Bible foretold the coming of the Messiah and the anointing of the Messiah and said there would be seven weeks and 62 weeks from the time of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. And Jesus had just been anointed as the Messiah and began preaching and said the time is fulfilled. And Ellen White commenting on that in the book Desire of Ages says this, Page 233, the burden of Christ's preaching was, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Thus the gospel message as given by the Savior himself was based on the prophecies. Now there's more to it. You can go and read that in Desire of Ages. Same thing said in, in, a little bit differently in Great Controversy. That in, and she says in Great Controversy, he was referring specifically to the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay, go to, go to uh, Luke chapter 24, and we see, again, Jesus basing his message on the prophecies. Luke chapter 24. Let's look at verse 44. Bible says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be what? Must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then it says, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Let me tell you today, the same thing needs to happen for every one of us. His own disciples couldn't comprehend the scriptures as much as they would have read them as much as they read him to this point, until Jesus opened their understanding. He needs to open our understanding. The message he preached when he began his ministry was a prophetic message. The message here in Luke 24 was prophetic. You go to the apostles in the New Testament who are going to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And where did they go? They went back to the prophecies. Acts chapter 2, Peter talks about how David wrote that your Holy One would not see corruption. And then he shows how Christ was a fulfillment. You go to the Apostle Paul, you go to Apollos in the New Testament, and they prove from Scripture, from prophecy, that Christ was the one who fulfilled all those things. Why am I bringing this up? Because a lot of times today we hear that prophecy is not Christ-centered, right? Prophecy is all these beasts and facts and figures and, and anything but Christ-centered. Folks, Christ gave the prophecies. His message was prophetic. Let me, let me explain it this way. This is, again, this is humanistic thinking that we get caught up in. We can sit and pontificate and philosophize about all this and say, well, it doesn't seem to me that talking about beasts of Daniel would do anything to draw people to Christ. But let me tell you what happens when you're going over the beasts of Daniel. Let me tell you what's happening when you're going through the image of Daniel too. Four metals, and then the, 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 the feet, and the iron and clay, and, and, and all that. What in the world is that going to do? I'll tell you what it does. When somebody is hearing the prophecy of Daniel, and they see that what the Bible foretold in 600 B.C. happened just exactly like it says. With pinpoint accuracy, the Spirit of God grips in their heart and mind, and they begin to think that if this is true, then the Bible is true. And if the Bible is true, then God must be true. And if God is true, the Savior is true. And the plan of salvation is true. And the Spirit illuminates their mind like he did E.J. Wagner in the tent on that day. And you may be going blah, 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 but they are seeing Christ uplifted. But no, we get to thinking it's all about me and how I phrase it and how I put the language in, in, in this and that. And I'm telling you from my experience, I've seen this happen time and again. As I, I remember the 
uh, first church I was in in Michigan, I was studying with a guy who grew up Christian reform. I'm going over Daniel 2. And if there's anything Adventists have been through, it's Daniel 2. I mean, in fact, if I tell my church, hey, I wouldn't even dare do it. Sabbath morning, you know what? I'm just going to do a refresher on Daniel 2. <sighs> right? So I'm studying Daniel 2, and there are different types of people you'll study with. When you give Bible studies, some people are very expressive. They talk a lot, they engage you, and those are fun because you can read them. There are other people that are very stoic, and they're just kind of like, and you don't know what's going on. So I'm studying, I get through the end of this study, I show how everything predicted came to pass, and there's one thing left to come, and that's that stone cut out without hands. I get done with the study, and I look at the guy, and he just, no expression. I said, so what do you think? He pauses for a minute. Incidentally, I need to throw this in. This guy was a seven-figure businessman, right? Because I know the prophecies aren't supposed to reach people like that. And he's sitting there kind of stoically, like I said. And then he says, he pauses for a minute. He says, this is incredible. I can't believe it. I've never seen anything. You know, I've been in the church my whole but More people need to know about this. And I was like, praise God. Because I was thinking I, I messed up the study or something. We think too much about ourselves when we're giving studies. We forget that the Spirit of God works powerfully through the words of Scripture, especially through the prophecies, because the prophecies reveal a God behind the scenes who is all-powerful. It grips the heart like nothing else can. They reveal Christ to the mind like nothing else does. It's a divine interaction that takes place while you're giving the information. The Spirit of God is transforming an individual. We find that in the, in the early church. We find it in the preaching of Christ. Ellen White comments about Paul's preaching to the Corinthians, and she says, from Old Testament scriptures, he showed that according to the prophecies and the universal expectation of the Jews, the Messiah would be of the lineage of Abraham and of David. Then he traced the descent of Jesus from the patriarch Abraham through the royal psalmist. He read the testimony of the prophets regarding the character and work of the promised Messiah and his reception and treatment of, on the earth. And then he showed how all these predictions had been fulfilled in the life, ministry, and death of Jesus of Nazareth. Peter did the same thing on Pentecost. And what did the people do? Men and brethren, what must we do? It gripped their heart with a sense of the supernatural power behind the word of God. And the Adventist message is a message, is a revelation of Jesus in prophecy. I'm going to show you something real quick. I'm looking at my time getting away, but I really want you to see something that for some reason a lot of Adventists don't see. I want you to go to Daniel 8 with me. Daniel chapter 8, this is where the Bible talks about the 2300 days and the sanctuary will be cleansed. But there's a piece in here that is so crucial for us. Used to be, I can't say used to be, I still hear it sometimes. People will say things like this to me. We'll do a prophecy seminar. And in the prophecy seminar, we'll talk about what happens when you die. We'll talk about hell, that it doesn't burn forever. We'll go through this stuff. And I've had people say, Pastor, you can't, you, you're advertising a prophecy seminar. You can't bait and switch them like that. You're going to talk about your prophecy seminar, and then you go and give them doctrine. I don't know if you've ever heard that kind of discussion. I want to show you something here in Daniel chapter 8. Looking at verse, I don't have time to break down Daniel 8 and look at the work of the little horn, the Antichrist power, Catholic Rome, if you've studied this before. But I want you to notice verse 12. We'll pick up in verse 12. No, verse, uh, verse 11. It says, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, that's referring to Christ, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his, that is Christ, the prince of the host, his sanctuary was cast down. So it says that this Antichrist power was going to come in and distort the teaching of the sanctuary. The place of Christ's ministry, what his ministry was there. Now, when you start telling people to go to man for forgiveness, that's a distortion, isn't it, of the sanctuary? Sanctuary would teach me to go to Christ for forgiveness. Okay? That's just a little application. There's more that could be said. Now notice verse 12. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast what? 
He cast truth down to the ground and did all this and prospered. Now think about that for a minute. When you cast truth down, let me tie something else with it. Look at verse 25. On the one hand, he cast truth to the ground and prospered. Verse 25 says this, Through his cunning, he shall cause what? My Bible says deceit, craft in the King James. He would cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Now what's another word for deceit? Lies. How do you cause a lie to prosper? Okay, so you've got to make people what? Believe it's the truth. So it says that this Antichrist power through the Dark Age period that it reigned would cast truth to the ground and it would make lies appear as the truth that was cast down. So the truth is taken away and lies are put in the place and nobody's the wiser. Think about church history. What truths were cast down to the ground during the Dark Age? People didn't have the Bible, did they? You couldn't read the Bible for yourself. And you heard what the priest said. And the priest said, oh, when you die, you go straight to heaven and you go straight to hell. Oh, by the way, hell burns forever and ever. Oh, by the way, the sacred holy day is Sunday, not Sabbath. Yes or no? Were those things that the Antichrist power distorted and cast to the ground? Yes, they are. Is that a part of prophecy? Yes, it is. The Bible foretold it's going to happen. Now watch this. Question number 13, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be? How long is this going to encompass? And, and in essence, how long is this little horn going to get away with what he's doing, casting the truth to the ground and causing deceit to prosper? How long will the vision be? Concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So the answer is, to how long? It's going to be for 2,300 days. And at that point, God says, I'm going to turn things around. So at the end of the 2,300 days, he said, I'm going to begin to restore the downtrodden truth. Truth about Christ's ministry in the sanctuary, the truth about everything else, the law and the Sabbath and all this. When was the end of the 2300 days? 1844. How did he begin to restore the truth? Through the Advent movement. Yes or no? Folks, when I have an evangelistic meeting and I'm preaching the three angels' messages and I'm talking about what happens when you die and when I'm talking about what, what the Bible says about hell and, and the Sabbath and these things, that is preaching prophecy. That is the unfolding of what was foretold in Daniel. And I've got people today like, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, we, we bait and switch them. No, we don't. We're telling them the very thing the Bible foretold we would tell them. And revealing the truth of God and that the comforter, the spirit of truth, comes into their heart and gives them that confidence and that peace that comes from knowing the truth. Our message is a prophetic message. Our movement is a prophetic movement, and Christ is in the center of that. The revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God commanded would be given and, and, and uh, revealed to the world. So let me just boil it down to this. There are a lot of studies. I know there are newer studies that, tr that focus on trying to be more relational, what have you. Uh, that's fine. But let me just make something very plain. If you are not Christ-centered... No study you ever give in your life will be Christ-centered. I don't care what lesson. You can get a lesson that, that oozes the love of God. It's not going to be any better than any other lesson if you yourself aren't Christ-centered. You don't make a, a, a Bible study Christ-centered by getting some lesson written in a certain way. A Bible study becomes Christ-centered when the giver of the study is Christ-centered. One of the things we teach at Emmanuel Institute is that all of these studies and what have you are their tools. Now, I worked with tools for years. As I mentioned earlier, I was an electrician, and I, I would have given anything if my tools could have just gone into the job site and done the work for me while I sat out in the truck. But they don't work that way. Tools only work when the workman with the tools uses them. You are the workmen and workwomen to work the tool of the Bible study. And if you want it to be Christ-centered, you need to be Christ-centered. And one of the most powerful ways for you to do that is to spend real, genuine time with God in prayer and in study. And I'm not talking about a five-minute prayer. 
You need to spend real time on your knees with the Lord, personal prayer. And ask Him to do for you what you can't do for yourself and ask Him to fill you with your spirit, with His spirit rather. (laughs) We're filled with our spirit. To fill us with His spirit and let that come out when we're sharing the truth with others. What makes a study Christ-centered is when we are centered on Christ. And when you have devotional time, I don't know how it is here, but I'm going to tell you statistically as a pastor, I dare say very easily that less than 50% of Seventh-day Adventists have regular devotional time. And let me clarify devotional time. Devotional time is not reading time. There's a difference between reading time and devotional time. Okay? It's kind of like this. Uh, What's your name? Cassandra? Cassandra and I can go out to lunch, but that's a whole different thing. than We could have eaten lunch together today, but that would have been a whole different thing from a date. Right? And my wife is pleased with that. (laughs) When I go out to lunch with my wife, it's different. It's in a different context. A lot of us, I know a lot of people do, okay, I'm going to read my Bible today because I have my reading assignment. But it's not a date with God. It should be. Your approach to devotional time ought to be a personal approach where you're on your knees in prayer saying, Lord, reveal yourself to me. And then in the Word, Lord, reveal yourself to me and see what God is speaking to you with an intention to put into practice in your life the things he reveals, not just to go through some information. And, and I don't want to, we, we overdo these things. I don't want you to overdo it and say, okay, let's see, how do I, how, how did he say to do this? How do I, I had a young lady ask me, I mentioned this morning uh, in the session we read in 2 Corinthians 3, how Moses came down from the mountain with his face glowing and then that, that glory went away. And I talked about how we can come to conferences like this and we're all, the same, we're all on fire. We were in this experience, and then we go and it fades away. And I had a girl come back afterwards, and she said, you know, that, I have that happen all the time when I come to GYCs. What, how do you change that? Look, folks, the reason that we can come to something like this and have that glow is because we have chosen to put ourselves in an atmosphere where we're thinking about and talking about Christ. There's no magic recipe here. There's no silver bullet here. You chose to give yourself to Christ. You want to maintain that at home, you do that every day. The problem is people go from a GYC and then they go home and they hang around friends or they get involved in activities where their mind is taken away from Christ. I don't want to make it rocket science when I'm talking about your devotional life, like, okay, let's see, what steps do I go through? Look, I'm just saying be in earnest with God. Don't treat it like an activity Treat it like, Lord, show yourself to me. And if you do that, you don't have to worry about making it happen. God will make it happen. You give him the time. And when God makes that happen in your heart, in your experience, that is going to overflow when you're giving Bible studies. I don't care what study you're using. So there are a lot of good Bible studies you can use. I would recommend a a question-answer Format. I had four that I mentioned here, and I'll, I'll touch on them really quickly in some of the benefits. There's a study series called Prophecies of Hope. It's based in the prophecies of Daniel, and it was put together by Gary Gibbs. And one thing I like about Prophecies of Hope is he has, Gary Gibbs has put together an accompanying script for the study. Now, I'll talk about this in our next session. When you give a study, don't read the study. Don't read your appeals. Don't, a script isn't for you to say, okay, I'm going to read this study to somebody. A script gives you an idea of the flow as you're practicing so that when you're going to give it, it, it is genuine. And, and I'll talk about what that means the next time. But it's helpful for some, there are some people I know that are really benefited by being able to see somebody actually walk through and give the study. I'll show you an example of that because I have one of his scripts in our next session. The Search for Certainty Lessons by Mark Finley are a great series of of, uh, lessons. Um, Gary Gibbs are a little bit different, but not too different. I was going to say something, but I'll skip over that. The It Is Written Bible Studies, they have a new set that was put together by John Bradshaw. And this is not an exhaustive list. This isn't saying these are the only studies you can use. Landmarks of Prophecy. One of the benefits of the landmarks of prophecy or the prophecies put out by Amazing Facts is that Doug Batchelor usually does his series, his video series, based on the printed lessons. So if you're studying the Bible with somebody and you go over one of those lessons, 
you can give them or leave a DVD. Your church, can our church does this, leave them a DVD copy of a lesson that they've just studied through with you so it reinforces it. And a lot of people benefit from that. And I'm not telling you to use any one of these. I'm just saying the one benefit of all these lessons is they follow something that our church has lost today. Let me explain what I mean. That is the question-answer format for Bible study. Now, some people, they want to, be, they want to transcend that. They say it's too babyish, and we've got to get into deeper... You know. Look, new people you're studying with don't need to plumb the depths of theology. The simple question-answer, and a lot of what I say we were losing is, this was given to us by God. The, the, the origin of the question-answer study in our church was a camp meeting in California, and S.N. Haskell was preaching, and a storm came up, and it got so loud, nobody could hear him preach. And so he came down from the pulpit and he gathered everybody close into the middle of the tent and and the Lord impressed him with his idea to ask a question and call out a Bible text and have somebody read the answer. Ellen White was on the ground but wasn't there that night. Her son Willie was there. He went home and he told his mother what happened and she said, you know, I've seen in vision over and over again that this is the method we should be following. It's too simplistic for some people, and I'm telling you, that's what people need when you're starting to study. A simple question, answer, where the Bible, they see the answer in the Bible. These lessons that I've mentioned are that format, simple question, answer. And, and what that does is it, it's not only helping them. The purpose and the reason Ellen White says this was given to us was that God's intention wasn't just the polished professional pastors or whatever else give studies. It was that every layperson give studies and every layperson, even if you've never given a study, can follow a simple question-answer format. So it makes it possible for the lay people to get involved. And I'm going to quote it again. I've done it in every session. The book Education says, it is in the water, not on land, that men learn to swim. If you put what little talents you feel you have to use, God will multiply them. Now, I'm going to talk about that more specifically in our next session on how to give a really good Bible study. But I just want to leave you with this. We want to make sure we give studies that people are led to Christ. We want to make sure that they're founded on Christ and they're Christ-centered. But there's a lot of talk today about this lesson and this method that's going to make it Christ-centered. And I'm telling you, what makes it Christ-centered is you being Christ-centered. You have got to make sure you are committed to Christ and grounded in Christ. You also have to have confidence that our message is the same. If you're questioning that the Adventist message isn't really founded in Christ, you're not going to give it with confidence to somebody, and it's certainly not going to be with the passion and the love for Christ. You make sure that you commit yourself to Christ every day and spend real devotional time with Him, not just reading time. Spend real time in prayer. And I mean, set some time, not a five-minute prayer. You know, allot yourself a half hour or more. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do if you haven't done that before. You're going to be like two minutes in and you'll be like, what am I going to say? (laughs) The Lord will bring it to your mind. Pray for people you know. Pray for the Lord's strength. Thank Him for the many things He's done. The Spirit of God will guide you in that prayer. The Bible says He teaches us how to pray for the things we don't know what to pray for. You'll find your prayer life growing and you'll find your strength in God growing and you'll find that Christ is going to emanate from you. And when Christ emanates from you, People will be one to Christ. So I hope that you take what we've talked about here, and I'm hoping that you're here because you are intending to study the Bible with somebody and by God's grace lead them to know the Savior better and His truth for these last days. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you so much, Father, for Jesus and all the truths that find their origin in Him. Father, I pray for us as a people that You would help us to come to know You better. That You would help us with our commitments to spend that real quality time with You. That, Father, if there are some here today who have been struggling with that personal time, help them in this GYC to learn and to know how to have a better walk with You. That Christ would emanate from everything that they do so that souls would be one to Jesus. We ask and pray this all in His name and for His sake. Amen. Now, I forgot to do it this time. I'll do it in the next session. I'm going to share with you a resource, this little resource called the Discipleship Handbook that is a, an invaluable resource 
for your spiritual walk. We'll talk about that in the next session. Thank you. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.